Deer found her. As you know, there's no blueprint for entrepreneurship. You wear so many hats, you burn the midnight oil, you pour your heart and soul into everything that you do. But without a doubt, the journey is worth every single second that you put into it. I'm Lindsay Pinchuk, host of the Dear Founder podcast. I say this because I've lived it for over a decade. I started my first company with $500 in my pocket and a baby in my belly. I grew it and I sold it all. This podcast is my weekly letter to you. We'll talk all things starting, growing, nurturing, and in some cases, even selling a business. Together with some of my closest contacts, I'm here to help you find your own success, whatever that means to you. The ride as a founder is the ride of your life. So come on in and join me for another episode that will get you one step closer to reaching your own founder goals. Welcome back to another episode of Dear Founder. Today's guest generated trust and authority in the interior design space before she saw the need for a better way to buy paint. And so she turned the industry upside its head. Wait until you hear her story. But before we get into today's episode, I'm your host, Lindsay Pinchuk, and I've been building brands for almost 25 years. With just a $500 investment, I founded, built, and sold a seven-figure business that reached 3 million people per month all organically. This podcast is my twice-weekly letter to you to inspire you to find success through your own entrepreneurial endeavors. This podcast is the show I wished for 13 years ago when I became an accidental female founder. So if there's anything that you want to hear about or anything that you want me to share to help you through your own endeavors, I invite you to reach out. All you have to do is DM me at Lindsay Pinchuk or email me at lindsay at lindsaypinchuk.com. And if you're inspired by today's episode, I invite you to share it. Text it to a friend or share it in your stories. Make sure you tag at Lindsay Pinchuk or at Dear Founder because I absolutely will come and say hello. And as always, if you like what you're hearing, we would love it if you left a five-star rating or a review as that is how other entrepreneurs discover our show and the incredible stories that we share here. All you have to do is go to www.ratethispodcast.com forward slash Dear Founder and you can leave a rating or review wherever it is that you podcast. So let's meet today's guest. After working for a decade in public relations at Victoria's Secret during its heyday, Nicole Gibbons pursued her passion and pivoted to become an interior designer best known for her fresh use of color and fashion forward point of view on decorating. Her work and expertise was featured in top media outlets like HGTV, own the Oprah Winfrey Network, Good Morning America, El Decor, Better Homes and Gardens, and more. Nicole's work in the design world enabled her to identify that the traditional paint shopping experience was broken, and she saw an opportunity to improve the process from start to finish. Since founding her company, Claire, in 2018, Nicole has earned a reputation as a groundbreaking entrepreneur that's challenging the status quo of a centuries-old industry. She's been recognized on Inc.'s Female Founder 100 list, honoring ambitious women entrepreneurs, earned a spot on the Forbes Next 1000 list of up-and-coming business leaders who are redefining entrepreneurship, and honored by Tree Hugger as an innovator making a difference in the world of sustainability. I cannot wait for you to meet today's guest, so please come on in and meet the one, the only, Nicole Gibbons. Welcome back to another episode of Dear Founder. I'm so excited about today's guest. 
I pursued her hard. Her story is amazing. And lo and behold, she is also from Detroit, just like me. So it's always great to talk to another Detroiter. But Nicole Gibbons, who is the founder and CEO of Claire, is here. And that title alone does nothing to sum up what exactly she does and who she is. So I cannot wait to dive in. Nicole, welcome to Dear Founder. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to chat. Of course. So I'd love for you to start us off by sharing your story with us. Tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do and tell us about Claire. Yeah, I'll try to give you the the Cliffs notes. I'm from Detroit, suburban Detroit, um, and grew up with a mom who was in the home business and a grandmother who was a passionate homemaker. So I grew up with a love and appreciation for all things home, but never thought that I would pursue anything in the home industry as a career. I grew up wanting to um, pursue medicine. And then in college, I was super into fashion and did a bunch of PR internships and came out of college uh, doing PR for Victoria's Secret. So I was working out of the New York HQ. Um, I was the first New York hire for the brand. So I was almost like entrepreneurial from the start because I was tasked with just setting up the office and getting the foundation built for uh, us to have a functional PR office in New York. Um, And long story short, I was there for 10 years um, during the glory days of VS. Now the the company isn't probably uh, the optics of the company aren't the best. But um, when I was there, it was during the heyday of Heidi Klum and Tyra Banks and Giselle and, you know, fashion shows and TV specials and swimsuit specials and all that crazy stuff that a lot of folks might remember. So it was a really, um, you know, kind of like what a time to be alive (laughs) sort of moment um, as a young 20 something kind of managing PR. But in the back of my you know, mind, I was always thinking about home. I invested so much time and energy in making my apartments feel really special. Um, I consumed design content voraciously. Um, and in 2008, when I was, you know, several years into my role and had been promoted and was, you know, kind of doing well at Victoria's Secret, I decided to start a decorating blog. I just wanted a creative outlet. I became really immersed in this community of design bloggers. And back then it was before social media. So, you know, all the conversation happened in the comments of the blog. (laughs) Um, And so I just like made friends in the blog comments and just loved this community of people that I really identified with and who were just as excited as I was to nerd out about all things design. And so I was like, I'm going to start a blog. This is fun. I love being part of this community. I have so much that I can say. Also, I felt like a lot of those design bloggers weren't in New York. And I was in New York, right in the epicenter of design. I had so much access to people. And because I was a publicist, I kind of knew how to get connected with folks. And I really felt like I could have a sort of a fresh perspective. So I started a decorating blog. And I think my unique point of view at the time relative to other design bloggers is that I had sort of an insider's uh, perspective, you know, even though I wasn't exactly an interior designer yet, I was an insider. I kind of just weaseled my way into the design community, made friends with other designers, made friends with all the editors, you know, people in the design industry really knew who I was. I was doing my day job at Victoria's Secret and speaking on panels at night and doing design events. And really that solidified my passion for design, but that was also during the recession, 2008, uh, craziest time in, 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 the economy, um, uh, and, uh, not the right time to be leaving my day job. So I kind of just stuck it out for about five years before I finally took the leap. And my goal was really always to 
air quote, be the next Martha Stewart. Um, initially, you know, I felt like there was no one young, no one cool and no one diverse talking about home and design on television. It was all either people that were older than me or, you know, had a much more mature aesthetic. And I felt like as someone who worked in fashion, there were so many cool fashion personalities to, um, you know, to follow. But in the home space, there was no one that looked like me that was my age. And I felt that perhaps I could be that. So, you know, finally, five years after starting my all my side hustle stuff, I made it a full time gig and became, you know, really started building out my design firm. And um, while also simultaneously trying to pursue media and television, positioning myself as an expert, pitching myself for morning shows. And then shortly after leaving VS, I booked a role on a DIY decorating show on the Oprah Winfrey Network, which was an amazing opportunity. Um, and that really helped me build and hone my skills on camera. And, um, you know, it was a, a wonderful experience to, to get to participate in that show. Um, and then, you know, I... I watched the landscape shift, you know, at the time, like I was auditioning for different shows left and right. Nothing excited me. Everything was like real estate and renovation. I mean, I like literally auditioned for like, you know, uh, love it or list it, like, you know, all those types of shows that became really popular at the time. And while it would have been an incredible, those would have been incredible opportunities. It wasn't what I was as passionate about. Um, so I kept thinking about what else is next and, you know, how can I extend my brand into physical products? And, um, I came up with this crazy idea that I was going to start a paint company. <laughs> um, and I'd explored a lot of different categories, um, beddings, other soft goods. And, you know, when I really started researching those markets, I didn't feel like they were fundamentally broken shopping experiences, Whereas with paint, it was awful. Every single person that I talked to about choosing paint, shopping for paint, had a lot of pain points to, uh, to share about their experience. And, you know, as someone who worked in home, I'd spent plenty of time in, you know, home and hardware stores. And I felt like those store environments really weren't, um, didn't match consumer expectations today. And I really felt like um, there was an opportunity to create a brand that was more transparent. And I looked at all of these other categories where these sort of direct consumer, more modern brands were emerging. And I really felt like I could apply a similar model to paint because it was this archaic industry. The companies that dominate are these stodgy old, you know, companies run by old white dudes who, you know, are so detached from who the target consumer actually is. Um, and really felt that I could bring a fresh perspective to the paint industry. And so not realizing how hard it is, because I think as a founder, you have to have a lot of blind optimism. I just decided to go for it. I had no lack of belief that I, you know, wasn't able to do it. I just was like, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm starting a paint brand and let me just figure it out one step at a time. Cause I think a lot of what entrepreneurship is, is problem solving. You know, no one has all the answers going into it. So so I have so many questions, obviously, and we're going to dive into Claire in a couple of minutes, but I want to dissect your story a little bit. I think a big part of why I love your story and wh why I love what you shared with me is that it didn't happen overnight. And I think that it's really easy to look at someone on the outside, and especially in today's age with social media, which you and I both started companies before social media existed. So we know how that is. But it's really easy today to look at someone and think, oh my God, like they've got it going on. And you just shared a very long journey with me to get to where you are today. And so, you know, your story is incredible. And when I 
like you said, so many things that I want to that I want to touch upon. I mean, the first thing that you you talked about is how you made friends in the community with your blog. And I would love for you to touch a little bit about that because you were doing this as a passion project. Mm -hmm. And that's what a lot of companies come from. And a lot of people who sit where you're sitting on this show talk about their passion projects that turned into businesses. But I would love for you to touch upon the importance of building that community before you even did anything with it. Yeah, I mean, it's funny because I didn't have an I didn't have a strategic agenda at the time. I, I truly was just connecting with people that I felt uh, you know, I identified with. And, um, I knew, however, once I started to build, um, I think awareness for my blog, you know, my blog while I was still in my day job was written up and real simple in the Washington post. And, you know, I had little kind of PR opportunities for myself and it wasn't until I started getting that kind of, you know, outside validation that I felt like, okay, maybe I am building something that could have value someday. And I, I didn't necessarily think it was around that community. I really kind of, thought about it as being more centered around me and my expertise, because I had no idea what 10 years later would look like. So I wasn't thinking like, let me cultivate community now so I can sell stuff to them later. That, that wasn't even part of my thought process. I was truly, it was so organic. Um, and that's why it worked. That's yeah. why I wanted, I wanted you to answer that, you know, yeah. because when you go into something first and foremost, just wanting to make money, it shows. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I think, and you know, you, you touched on it long journey. I started my side hustle business in 2008. Claire launched in 2018. That was a 10 year span of hustling, grinding, basically working two jobs, you know, doing a 10, 12 hour PR job that required travel and, you know, was nuts. And then, you know, staying up all day and all night to kind of work on my, my, you know, and on the weekends working on my, my side hustle. So you, you know, I, I grind, grinded it out really hard for, for all that time. You made a comment that you said you stuck it out. And I wrote that down because that stuck out to me. I think a lot of us stick it out until it's really a breaking point. And what was that breaking point and that catalyst that made you rip off the Band-Aid and go for it with this 2.0 of yours? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know... I think when I was referring to kind of, I stuck it out, I just stuck, stuck with following my passion. You know, I knew that pursuing something in home is what would ultimately make me happy. I worked in this job that at the time people would have coveted, like everyone would have, you know, thought I had the most dream job in the world. Not only was I working with this, you know, brand that at the time was perceived as being amazing and incredible with all these amazing people. I was traveling to these like amazing places and staying in the best hotels. I mean, it was a, a lovely experience at the time, but I was so much more engaged in literally like the home world and the, the home blogging community and going to the D and D building in New York and like being so inspired by the showrooms and, you know, the people that I was around and the, the amazing homes I got to see. So I just kind of stuck with that, frankly, because that's what made me happy. And then the pivot point was, you know, I knew immediately that I wasn't going to stay at Victoria's Secret. I knew immediately that I needed to follow what I was passionate about. But the um, practical side of me was like, don't quit your day job. It's a recession. No one's hiring interior designers right now. Like, you're, you know, it'll be extra hard if you try to do it now. So I think I more or less just waited till the right timing because a lot of times... Um, 
business success is about timing. You could have the greatest idea in the world, but if the market isn't ready for it or if the timing isn't right, um, you know, it, it might be difficult to be successful. So, you know, I just waited until I felt like I had enough money. I had enough confidence. The market was, uh, you know, comfortable enough that I felt like people might hire me to do something, whether it's TV or designing their homes or whatever. And um, I really just, you know, stuck it out until I felt like I had enough confidence, I had enough money saved, and that I was ready. Um, and so I took the leap, decided to bet on myself and made it happen. And, you know, that first iteration of my business was very much centered around me um, as a designer, as a personality, my talent, my time, my energy. Um, and that got hard after a while too, you know, um, it, being in, in a design business as an interior designer, it seems glamorous, but I always used to joke with people that like, I'm really just the help, you know, I'm, I'm in someone's home, uh, you know, help, helping to make it beautiful. And, you know, some of it isn't that glamorous, the, the, the most beautiful parts of design, are really just like one facet, probably the smallest facet of the overall process. Most of it is project management, construction management, you know, really unsexy stuff. Um, and I actually enjoyed that work too. I felt like I was a really good project manager. I really enjoyed seeing it all come together and like planning and then, you know, executing. But the reality is like the creative part of design is really just a small fraction of it. And so, you know, I, I just sort of reached a tipping point where I realized that I didn't want to scale a design firm. You know, I liked having a design firm that was small and manageable around myself, but I wanted to build a big business. And so I knew that that big business wasn't going to be a design firm. I knew that it needed to be like some pivot from that. And so physical products just made a lot of sense when I looked at all of the people I admired, like Martha Stewart, even like Nate Berkus, like the people who really built their design businesses, they really branched out and created a lot of awareness for their brand and their products through a combination of media and licensing deals. And I, um, explored licensing. I didn't, I wasn't excited, excited. I wasn't as excited about licensing. I thought, I think, um, being a really ambitious person, I wanted to build something from the ground up. I like the challenge of it. I like the control of it. Um, and so I chose the, the, the harder path in hindsight, it would have been so much easier to just slap my name on some products and <laughs> have a hand in the creative process. But, you know, obviously a lot more upside when you, when you build it yourself. Hi guys, it's me, Lindsay. I'm not sure if you're aware, but over the last nine months, I haven't just helped big enterprise brands on their marketing efforts through my consulting firm. I've also helped over a dozen women, small business owners in launching their companies, building their brands, and to tweak what wasn't working. I've been building and growing brands for nearly 25 years, but I've forever used one method to build my own brands and that of my clients and students. My signature suite method utilizes social media, your website, emails, events, partnerships, and publicity to generate and execute cost-effective community-centric marketing strategies. If you're looking for that added layer of guidance, please reach out. There's a link in my show notes. Book a call with me and let's see how I can help you. I can't wait to meet you and learn about your business. Now back to the show. So let's get into a little bit about Claire. I One of the things that you said that I love in, in your determination of what you were going to start was that so many people had pain points when it came to paint. And yeah. that is 
why you start a company. I mean, you start a company to solve pain points. And the fact that you identified that before moving forward Mm -hmm. is a huge upside because a lot of people don't. But how did you get this started? I mean, you built yourself up as an expert. Obviously, your 1.0 and your first job, that lent itself to you being able to do this very effectively. You are everywhere in the press. You're on the Oprah Winfrey Network. I mean, you're doing all this amazing stuff, building yourself up as a credible expert, which, of course, will help lead to sales later. But what do you know about... making a paint, making paint, you know, I mean, you, you started something like you said from the ground up. So where did you even start? Yeah, it's funny. I knew nothing about making paint, but I knew a lot about creating beautiful homes. And at the end of the day, I really felt like what we're really selling is not actually the paint. It's this promise of a beautiful home. It's the after, right? And so to me, Making paint was part of it, but it was everything else about the brand was a big part of building it too. But I started with just really simply, what are all the things I need to learn? I am a voracious learner. I love, um, uh, I just love the process of learning. So I got very engaged initially in trying to learn about paint formulation. I felt like I need to understand it from the, just the foundational level. So I started talking to folks. I went to the Northwestern alumni directory, found, um, someone who, um, was a, and I actually found her through a Google search. I was searching for women chemists in the, in the coding space and then architectural coding slash paint space. And, you know, I stumbled across this uh, press release on this woman and it turned out that she got her chem PhD at Northwestern, which is where I went. And so I reached out to her through the directory, asked her if she'd be willing to chat. She was open to chatting and she shared a ton of insights. Um, she invited me out to, um, you know, the HQ where she worked, which was one of the largest chemicals companies in the world. And, you know, I got to sit with the whole team and learn, you know, get a fantastic foundation on paint chemistry. So that was like a, a wonderful place to start. I also knew that this wasn't the type of product I can make in my kitchen. Um, you know, I knew that I needed, you know, relationships, manufacturing partners, and I also knew I needed a lot of capital. So that was kind of the next thing. It was like once I had a, a solid enough foundation around paint formula and a concept around like the kind of paint we wanted to offer, it was like, okay, who's going to go make it? And so then it was like, okay, researching what are all the ways that you can get paint made how, where, you know, where are the factory relationships where, you know, who, you know, who's, um, you know, who's out there that could be a partner to us. Um, so I started researching that way, having a bunch of conversations. It was a lot of cold outreach. Actually our manufacturing partner today was a cold outreach. Um, literally just, uh, you know, and these companies are very old school. So I had to call up on the phone and say, Hey, I'm looking for someone to talk to, you know, to, you know, here's what I'm interested in. Who's the right person there to, to talk to. And that's literally how this conversation or this relationship, um, you know, came to be. Um, and, you know, so it's just a lot of, you know, similar to the kind of blogging design world, it was just a lot of weaseling my way into the right rooms with the right people. Um, and just being really, you know, you can't be afraid or, you know, to be aggressive about, um, you know, kind of going after things, you know, the, the, the folks that we work with, you know, a much more mature company, not as nimble. I mean, I literally stalked this man <laughs> for a whole summer. <laughs> to get to a deal, you know, he wasn't calling me back fast enough, you know, all sorts of things. And, um, you know, so you, you just got to really go, go after it. Um, and that's what I did. I went after it with, with every ounce of passion and, um, you know, hustle and, uh, 
you know, yeah. So it was kind of learning about paint chemistry, learning about kind of how I would get it made. And then the last step in the kind of piece of the puzzle was, um, raising capital. Like, how do I get the money to, to, to actually do all of this? Cause I, I can't afford it on my own. So I, you know, pretty much taught myself a masterclass in, you know, how to, how to break into the VC world, how to figure out who the right investors are, how to target them, how to pitch them, how to create a pitch deck, how to build a financial model. You know, I found someone to help me with the financial model. Some kid who worked at Morgan Stanley, who I met at a startup conference, I was like, Hey, have you ever built a financial model? Can you help me build mine? And, you know, he, he helped me out for the first iteration. And, you know, it was just sort of that, just meeting people, networking, um, being in the right rooms and the right places at the right time and kind of all of those pieces sort of fitting together. And then, you know, once I had that, I think given my background in, in marketing and brand building and, you know, I knew how to fit all the other pieces together. That, that was the easy part, you know, finding someone to build a website, finding someone to do the branding. And, you know, I had so many ideas, um, you know, for, for what I wanted and really clear vision for all of that stuff. So that was actually the easy part. It was also the most fun part. Um, but the hardest part were, were, was actually cracking the code on all of the aspects of the business that I was not an expert in or where I, you know, where I had no knowledge and Today's episode is brought to you by Hivecast, an amazing agency providing high-quality podcast production made simple and affordable. I hit the jackpot when I came across Hivecast. As I pieced together services from contractors all over the web initially to help me with my podcast, Hivecast was everything that I needed all in one place. For just $500 per month, they not only produce and edit four episodes, but they also create the marketing assets. Emma, my account manager, is amazing, making sure that I'm on task and that we can schedule episodes regularly and by my deadlines. Honestly, the time saved working with Hivecast is worth at least triple what I'm paying. Their sister company, Fireside, offers other marketing services for small businesses, including social media management, Facebook and Instagram ads, search engine marketing, and so much more. Again, all at a rate palatable by a small business owner. The best part, there's no contract. You can purchase their services as needed on a monthly basis. Use the code FOUNDHER and save 50% off your first month of services. Give them a try. The decision to outsource this part of my business has surely saved me a ton in the long run, and it was the best decision I've made for my business. How long did it take from your ideation of Claire to the time you were selling paint? Yeah. So I sat on the idea for a whole year. I thought of the idea kind of came to me in a, in a moment of epiphany in 2016. And that year I was super busy with my business. My business was going really well. I was doing TV stuff, media stuff. I was working with three or four private clients throughout the year. Um, I booked a, you know, something I, I'm just now talking about, but I was doing all sorts of random television work. You know, I was like, if the money's good and it's not a lot of time, sure, I'll do it. So I hosted an animal show for children, like that literally I never once talked about on social media. So I was just doing all sorts of stuff and probably spread too thin. Um, and so in 2017, the new year, January is always when I'm resetting my life priorities, um, you know, refocusing on what really matters, mapping out my goals for the year. And so I came back to this idea and I said, okay, I am unmarried, no children, no, you know, no real obligations. This is the time to take the risk. If I wait any longer, like, you know, there's a chance I might not have the 
the, the balls, so to speak, to go, to go through with it. So like it's now or never. And I decided to take a quarter off from everything else I was doing. I was wrapping up one client project. Um, I was about to take on a couple other new projects. I decided not to, and said, I would just kind of feel out this idea. Um, and so I, I really only spent about six weeks and then I was all in. It was like that conversation with the chemist. It was the convert, you know, a couple pivotal conversation with folks in the industry, um, that, you know, just gave me the confidence to really, really go at it and go after it. And so probably by February of that year, I was all in. And so it pretty much took the entire year of February, figuring out the supply chain manufacturing and capital. I literally closed my pre-seed round of funding, uh, on the 21st of December, 2017. So right before Christmas. And then in, I took a week of downtime to like enjoy the holidays. And then I remember that next Monday, I'm pretty sure was it the third of January, I think. And that third of January is when I hit the ground running and we launched, uh, that July. So it was about seven months. It was about a year to get to raising capital and then about seven months from money in the bank to launching. And what did the team around you look like? Did you have people that were helping you? Did, did you like, what did your, I mean, you were, it was your, just your design firm at the time. Yeah. Was there other, like, were there other players involved? Yeah. And it's interesting. I'm, I'm actually having a reflection right now. So when I ran my design business, I was really scrappy. I couldn't afford a whole team and salaries or whatever. So I always worked with freelancers. I Thank much- you for being honest about that. <laughs> and for, No, because I think it's so important for founders to hear that like, I couldn't afford. So I found a way to do it, you know? So yeah. thank you. Yeah. I had, I just worked with freelancers and that was how I ran things. And it worked. It worked when it was just me managing a few freelancers. It was totally doable. It was scrappy, but that's how it was. And so when I started Claire, you know, and my reflection is like in hindsight, what I wish I would have done earlier up front was invest in solid full-time team members who could really help me build because freelancers, they're doing a role, they're doing a, a quick scope of work. They're in and they're out. They're not necessarily taking a significant amount of ownership. Um, but in the beginning I hired, uh, three people, uh, full-time. So I hired kind of like a junior level marketer, um, who could just do a bunch of different things as a generalist. She was a perfect early stage startup hire. I hired a operations person, um, someone who came from with a strong supply chain background and, um, was an incredible, uh, partner to me for the first three and a half years of our business. And then I also hired a, um, someone who was fresh out of business school to manage customer experience. Also the perfect early stage startup employee could figure anything out, was really smart. Um, but then outside of that, everyone else was a freelancer or an agency or a third party of some sort. Um, and so, you know, we had an agency that helped with building out our website, you know, independent designer who helped with all of our branding, you know, just a lot of consultants and people like that. And frankly, we're kind of still in that space where we rely on a lot of third parties and consultants. Our full-time team is pretty small. We're about eight or nine people, um, give or take full-time. And then, um, the rest of the team is just a, a band of, of freelancers and agencies that support us. And, you know, it works. Um, but there are definitely times where I feel like we need more horsepower in house that we don't exactly have. And it, it works with the freelancers and the whole kind of third party route. But, um, you know, that's kind of one of the things I probably would have done differently in hindsight is really focus on building out my team versus relying so heavily on, third parties. And 
today, how is your business in terms of Claire and then your design firm? Like, does the design firm still exist? Is no. it some, okay? I retired the moment I decided to dedicate uh, the, the, my time to building this business. So I, uh, I mean, retired loosely. I feel like once a designer, always a designer. But I am no longer working with clients and haven't since 2017, um, since I wrapped up that one project in Q1 and, and then was pretty much full time on Claire. And the other thing too, is like, people don't realize how much sacrifice it actually requires to get something like this up and running. Cause even though I didn't necessarily have the capital to actually like manufacture the product and all of that, um, I lived the whole of 2017 off of savings, you know, and I feel very privileged to have been in a position to do that and, and not have to like take a lifestyle drop or whatever. But I pretty much spent all of 2017 unpaid. Like I did a few miscellaneous kind of like brand collaborations and things like that, but I was not, and, and my design business was, I did pretty well. And so I basically cut my income to almost nothing um, and bet on that in order to get this business off the ground. So it was a significant sacrifice. Um, and again, people don't realize these things. You know, I, dropped my salary significantly. I didn't even, I wasn't even able to pay myself until I raised capital. So, um, and even then I was not the highest paid person in the company. Um, I paid myself just enough to get by and then really invested the rest of the budget and the team and the growth and building the business and hiring other people. And, you know, because you only have so much money, our pre-seed was $2 million. It sounds like a lot, but when you're manufacturing a product, you've got to do marketing. You have a ton of, you know, uh, uh, you know, not necessarily a ton of overhead, but there's overhead. Um, you know, it's really difficult to um, to make maximize that budget. Um, and so, you know, I was have never been the highest paid person in the company. You know, well, I and um, again, I appreciate your transparency. And I also I asked that for a reason. Like I knew the answer to that question, but I wanted people to hear that you shifted and you and you had you stopped one thing in order to start another. Because yeah. I also think it is so common for women and also women who are programmed to be entrepreneurs to just want to take on everything and not realize that you have to cut back sometimes in mm -hmm. order to grow in other places. And, and I think that's, that's really important. Um, so I appreciate your transparency with all of that because I just, I also feel like so, so all too often people share like the good things and don't talk about the fact that like we don't pay ourselves or we paid someone else first or we paid someone else more or whatever it might be. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. And I, I really appreciate you for, for having these open, open conversations. Cause I feel like, you know, even when I do other interviews and just in general, when you hear other founders talking, it's like, everything's awesome. It's amazing. We're crushing it. And the reality is, is that every startup is a shit show. Even the ones who are doing exceptionally well, I know startup founders who have built businesses doing, you know, eight, nine figures in revenue, and it's still not, you know, riddled with problems internally, you know, a lot of chaos when you're, when you're doing something that no one's ever done before. There's a lot of figuring it out that's happening all the time. And that could feel really ambiguous and chaotic to a lot of people. 
Um, and these are the things that no one talks about. No one talks about how hard it is. No one talks about all the sacrifices that, you know, you end up making. I know friends who have companies and they're struggling to, you know, grow their families because they're so stressed out and, you know, all sorts of things. And no one ever talks about the stuff. It's hard. Um, but, um, you know, again, if you really are passionate about what you're building and you are, you know, I think a lot of it kind of going back to this stuck it out comment, a lot of it is just like, having the grit to stick it out because the ups and downs are, are tough. The, the ups are great, but the downs are the, you know, the highs are highs and the lows are low. And there is, I, I can't imagine a single business, even the ones who are air quote crushing it, that don't have lows. Um, and when those lows get really low, you know, so a lot of, <laughs> I, I call it like, you know, a lot of people give up, um, and, you know, to, to be able to continue grinding it out through the lows um, is I think one of the determining factors of a lot of businesses making it or not. How has the foundation that you laid through your design business and the, the personality and expertise that you built up prior to starting Claire, how has that parlayed into the success of your brand today? I think it gives us a lot of credibility. Um, one of the core differentiators that I believe, uh, you know, our brand has is that we are, you know, we're designer led. And so we're giving our customers real credible expert advice. You know, there's a few startup competitors that followed in our heels and, and, and you know, maybe, maybe took some cues from our business model, but you know, it's the stories are like, Oh, I couldn't find a paint color. So I decided to start a, start a paint company or, you know, just uh, some personal pain point, but no real expertise. It's like one day I was working in some completely unrelated industry. And then the next day I was a paint company CEO. So, you know, with me, it's like, I've been entrenched in the home space for, for years and, uh, you know, more than a decade, um, at this point and, and, and even at the point when I started Claire and on top of that, I've had the opportunity to work with every single end user in the paint buyer journey from your everyday homeowner to architects, contractors, you know, um, you know, your professional painters, your, your super professional painting companies to your man with the van, you know, I've worked with them all and I understand all of their pain points. And so I think that gives me a really unique perspective on the market. You know, we initially started with a focus on solving the pain points for the average DIYer who walks in a big box store and is totally overwhelmed and, you know, enabling them to have an easier, more inspiring paint shopping experience. But there are so many more um, customer segments for us to focus on. And I think the unique insights that we have can give us a competitive edge in really going after those markets and those customer segments. Um, and, um, you know, yeah, a lot of people talk about product market fit, but there, there's a, I think something really compelling to this whole idea of founder market fit. Um, and I think for, for this business, um, you know, I'm an excellent founder market fit, you know, with, with really unique insights on the industry. I mean, I don't want to talk about other paint brands, but even prior to Claire, I've done different collaborations with, you know, with other paint brands and, you know, really have had a good insight and a pulse on, on the market and the opportunities. So I think that's been really helpful throughout the so journey. Claire's website promises to make paint shopping simple. How do you do that? So a few ways, a lot of times innovation isn't always like high tech, like everyone right now is on the AI bandwagon. One of the ways that we innovated in the industry is just simplifying the color palette. The average paint brand has about 3000 colors. Um, some brands have more than 5,000 colors. It's ridiculous. So if you are the average person and you want to pick a white paint for your house and you go into say a paint store, um, you have a hundred plus shades of white to choose from, which is ridiculous. 
interior designers are not choosing from hundreds of shades of white. We generally curate our own palettes of tried and true colors that we know and love. And then usually there's like a handful of a roster of colors waiting in the wings that we're excited to try because we think has the potential to look amazing in certain spaces. And that like that, that is what it is. And, um, you know, the average person doesn't need so many colors to choose from. And I think um, a consumer, particularly the type of consumer that's willing to buy a product like this online, they're also the type of person who wants it curated for them. They just want someone who's an expert to say, these are the best pick from these. And it removes all the decision fatigue and all the stress and anxiety from the process. So simplifying the color selection, we launched with 55 colors. Now we have 75. So we're always adding colors, but they're going to remain tightly curated and, you know, only colors that we know our customers will love based on data, based on feedback, things like that. We simplified sampling. So the old way of buying of sampling paint required you to buy a little liquid, you know, eight ounce jar or a pint of paint, um, single use paint supplies, and literally have to paint the samples on your wall and wait for it to dry and live with it to decide if you wanted the color um, or not. And we um, created a peel and stick color swatch. Uh, we were the first brand to have that as our only method of paint sampling. And, um, you know, that made paint sampling an instantaneous process. You literally put it on your wall like a sticker. It's non-damaging and repositionable, and you can see exactly what the color looks like. So those are just some of the easy ways. We created a really seamless online experience that included an algorithmic color recommendation engine that helps you pick a paint color. So if you still need help or you're not sure where to start, um, this tool will kind of guide you in a direction that we, we feel pretty confident in. And, um, you know, it was really around the experience. I like to say we didn't create some sort of paint that didn't exist before. You know, our paint is better for you. And I think we're also one of the only brands that really focuses on that. I think big brands treat better for you paint like your average grocery store. It's full of stuff that will probably give you cancer and then one little organic aisle, <laughs> you know, or one little gluten-free section. Um, you know, whereas our, you know, that better for you value proposition is really important to me personally. Um, I am the type of person that cares about every product I bring into my home. I've had uh, two siblings and a, and a parent with cancer. And, you know, I care so much about um, ingredients and things like that. So I wanted to create a brand that would make people feel good about the paint they were bringing into their homes, particularly since the traditional paint industry hasn't always been as transparent about um, what's in the paint and how it can affect your health. Where are you guys in terms of growth? So we've grown significantly. I mean, from the early days of, you know, 2018 to now, I mean, I don't know, probably over a thousand percent growth from, from then to now, but we, we grew, we, we had a, we had our big growth spurt in 2020. Um, you know, so I'd say from summer 2018, when we launched to 2020, I'd say the first year was just a lot of figuring it out, trying to optimize the buyer journey, trying to figure out the right paid marketing strategy, all that kind of stuff. Um, but then when the pandemic happened and everyone was stuck in their homes, we really benefited from a huge tailwind of growth. Um, everybody. So that year alone, we grew 550%. Um, and um, because everyone was painting and because we had invested so much in building our brand and our PR presence and our media presence, people were discovering us organically. Um, when people were searching for places to buy paint online, like we're who they found, um, first. And, um, I think that resulted in a tremendous amount of customer growth. And we've also been really lucky to, um, build a really loyal community of customers. So, um, we have really high retention rates. A lot of people assume 
you know, folks wouldn't come back and buy paint uh, that frequently, but actually people tend to tackle their paint projects incrementally. And if someone has a whole home to paint or they've just moved, they've got a lot of rooms and that's a lot of paint. And so, you know, we have about like at a one year point, we have about a 32% repeat purchase rate and it, it goes up from there. Um, so it's, um, you know, the, the customer retention is really strong. We continue to acquire new customers. So at this stage, you know, we've got a solid business, um, and, you know, we're at this inflection point where we're trying to feel, figure out how do we generate that next big step change, right? You know, we're growing incrementally, but, um, you know, really trying to, to get to that next. What um, is next? That was my next question. I think, you know, for, for us, um, our, my vision for Claire has always been to build an omni-channel brand. I came from an omni-channel retail background. I understand and, and, you know, kind of using Victoria's Secret as the example, you know, really understands what it takes to build a brand with that level of, of brand awareness. You know, when I worked at that company, we were opening stores internationally and we'd have, thousand people lined up around the corner to come in and, and see the store. You know, you, you can't pay for that type of brand awareness. And um, it takes a lot to get there. Um, but in order to, to get there, you need to be everywhere your customers are. Building a brand that is only online really limits your visibility. So for, for me, knowing that I had this desire to build a business that could compete with the legacy paint brands, um, you know, really compete someday, means we need to be everywhere the customer is. And so for, for, for us, that means retail. And I think just given the trajectory, you know, the first year and a half, just kind of being a learning phase and then going into the pandemic where it was all online and, you know, that was all that mattered because no one was leaving their homes. And then post pandemic, our industry, I mean, not unlike others, but we were hit with a very weird series of sequence of events that created some massive supply, raw materials, supply constraints across mm -hmm. the whole industry. So you can Google the great paint shortage of 2021. No one could get enough raw materials to make enough paint. So that was a really challenging year. Even if we wanted to go into retail, that was not the time because no one could get, get enough product made. Um, and so now the time is right. And we're, you know, we're actively, um, you know, focused on having these conversations and, you know, feeling close to, to, to landing um, a partner to bring Claire in stores. And we're really excited about that. Can't um, wait to hear. Yeah. And that'll be the next, the next chapter of growth for us, for sure. So I have one more question for you. It's the same question I ask at the end of all of my episodes. And that is what are three actionable steps or tips that you would give a new founder that's just starting out? Um, really think about your long-term plan. I think a lot of startups fly by the seat of their pants and they're taking things one day at a time, but think about the outcome that you want to achieve and make sure that all the steps that you um, have in your journey are optimizing toward that outcome. Um, second, invest in team. It is everything, especially if you're a solo founder like me, you need to make sure that you have a capable, competent group of people around you that can help you execute your vision. Um, and I think people underestimate how difficult it is to hire for that type of talent. There's tons of great talent out there who can just do a job, but someone who can actually build something from nothing and grow it and improve it and optimize it is really difficult to find. So making sure that you really build out a, a, a strong plan to, to hire and a really tight rubric through which you evaluate your, your candidates. And then I would say, um, lastly, and this is something I even struggle with. So I, I feel a little bit like an imposter giving this advice, but the startup journey is significantly taxing on your time, energy, um, and stress levels, <laughs> um, especially when you're running a venture backed company. And so I think like really finding one creative outlet for yourself or one 
kind of outlet for yourself. It doesn't necessarily have to be a creative outlet. It could be working out. It could be whatever, but find one outlet for yourself to pour yourself into outside of work so that you truly can escape and unplug your brain from the constant, um, you know, stress and anxieties and things to do that come along with running a business. Nicole Gibbons, founder and CEO of Claire. Thank you so much for being here. Your story is amazing. I have loved every minute talking to you. I feel like I could talk to you all day. You're going to have to come back after you get into retail because I'm going to want to pick your brain about that as well. Um, But thank you for being here. I so appreciate you. Thanks so much for having me. I hope that you enjoyed today's conversation as much as I did. I absolutely loved talking with Nicole Gibbons. And I hope that you enjoyed all that she had to share right here with all of you. As always, I want to share Nicole's top five takeaways from our conversation. And if you sign up for my newsletter, which is linked in the show notes, you will have all of the takeaways sent straight to your inbox. So take out your pen and paper because you're going to want to write these down. Number one, success doesn't happen overnight. Number two, do your research, use your networks, reach out through resources like your alumni directories and your network. Ask people for advice, information, and insights when you're starting a project or starting a company featuring a process or a service or a product that you do not know anything about. Number three, be scrappy. You can absolutely run a business on freelancers. It can work and it is doable. Number four, Don't take on more than you can handle. If you plan to start an extension of your company, make sure that you have the bandwidth to do so. I love how Nicole shares this tip. She went all in on Claire, which made it doable in under a year. You have to cut back sometimes in order to grow in other places. And number five, starting a company requires a lot of sacrifice and people simply don't talk about it. It's very hard. I want to thank Nicole Gibbons for being here today with us on Dear Found Her and thank all of you for tuning in and for listening to this incredible episode. Please make sure that you stay tuned because we have another brand new episode and another incredible Found Her coming your way next week. Thank you so much for listening and thank you for being here.